In the early morning hours of February 4, 1989, the brutalized body of a 57-year-old man was found lying in the snow near his home in Huntington County, Indiana. Still clinging to life, he was taken to Lutheran Hospital in Fort Wayne, where he died three days later. He had been shot six times in the head and sustained several deep lacerations to his skull from a hatchet. This is the story of Eldon Anson. Welcome to Crime Soup Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Kanapis. And I'm Kaylee. And today we'll be discussing the murder of Indiana man Eldon Anson in 1989. I'm going to warn our listeners now, this crime we'll be covering has elements of suicide, violence, homophobia, and child sexual abuse, which I will try not to describe too graphically, but please skip to another episode if you need to. Kaylee doesn't have a choice. She has to listen either way. I just have to sit here while it happens to me. So our story takes place in the small town of Huntington, Indiana, which in 1989 had a population about 16 to 18,000 people, the overwhelming majority of which are white and Christian. Approximately half the town identified as Roman Catholic and reported regularly attending mass. In order to understand this story, understand the people involved and their motives, we're going to transport back in time not only to 1989, but back to high school. This is going to feel way out of left field. Don't take me there. <laughs> I'm going to ask you deep probing questions in a second. No. You don't have to answer them if you don't want to. But this is going to feel way out of left field, but I promise it'll tie back into the story in a minute. So Kaylee, you were raised Christian. I sure was. Can you tell me about how sex and masturbation were talked about in church when you were a teenager um straight off the bat they were compared to murder in fact i was taught growing up that like premarital sex was the second worst thing you could do in this life like the only worst thing you could do was to murder somebody mm -hmm. and i'm dead ass serious that was the exact verbiage that was used premarital sex was so 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 serious okay and what about homosexuality was that ever mentioned in church <laughs> yes in fact i lived in california during the whole like yes on eight and my church they recruited because i was a young child i was like 13 years old when this was happening and they recruited the youth in our church to go door to door and hand out yes on eight pamphlets, which was like, save the traditional family. And then they had us like standing on street corners. They were telling us in church, like the adults to vote for yes on eight. And that it was like a really big deal if you didn't vote yes on eight, like, because this is what the Lord wanted. So do you agree when I say that, like, if you were raised in a Christian household, that there was a lot of shame surrounding homosexuality? 
Absolutely. Yeah. There's a reason why people stay in the closet or stayed in the closet for a long time. Yeah, and sometimes it was dangerous. You could get punished, like, physically, or, like I said, sent away to those camps. There were absolutely conversion therapy versions of the troubled teen rehab places. Our story today, though, takes place in 1989. So I wasn't alive. You weren't alive. I don't really know what it was like, but we're going to try and understand it. And this was in Indiana. Yeah. <laughs> like if it was bad in California where I was raised, I don't even want to know what it was like in Indiana, honestly. Yeah. Like that sounds awful. This is a small town, almost 50%. I think the exact number was 42% of residents in this small town reported that they went to Catholic Mass regularly. So that's that's an insane number. <laughs> but anyways. It's a no from me. So uh, one of the key people in our story today is a 16-year-old. Actually, I think I wrote that wrong. I want to say he's 17. So one of the key people in our story today is a 17-year-old high school junior named Jared Wall. So Jared Wall was what most people would consider a golden child. He was smart, athletic, charismatic. He was active in his church. He taught Sunday school to the preschool age kids. And he was very popular at school. He's a junior and he's only five foot six and about 140 pounds. He made up for it with his big personality and confidence. He loved sports, but was too small to play football or basketball like a lot of the other popular boys in school, but he found his niche competing in track events. What nobody knew about Jared, however, was that he was harboring strong thoughts of suicide. Beginning at only 11 years old, Jared began being groomed by a teenage boy a few years older than him, who taught him how to masturbate before eventually coercing him into sex acts. And they continued this hidden relationship up until the time of our story, which is when Jared finally decided he was going to cut ties with this young man for good, at the risk of being exposed because this young man threatened to go public if Jared ever left him. Keeping this kind of secret was very overwhelming for Jared. He felt a lot of shame surrounding his relationship with this young man, but I don't think he fully understood at the time that he was a victim of sexual abuse. And unfortunately, he regularly attended a Christian church and lived in a Christian household that taught that homosexuality was an abomination and one of the worst sins someone can commit. To make matters worse, 1989 was well into the AIDS epidemic, which was notoriously dubbed the Gay Plague, since it seemed to be predominantly affecting gay men. And Jared had an uncle named Derek that he absolutely adored, who was suffering from AIDS at this exact time. So if you can imagine for a moment that you're a teenage boy in small-town America, it's 1989, most everyone around you are devout Christians, you've been taught that God abhors homosexuality, you personally have been secretly engaging in homosexual sex, and to prove that the pastor has been telling the truth, Gay men across the globe appear to be dropping like flies and dying painful deaths, almost like God is punishing them. In Jared's mind, gay men were the cause of all his problems. One of them had obviously seduced and infected his uncle with AIDS, he thought. And if God saw fit to kill them for their sins, why shouldn't Jared? 
Like I mentioned before, Jared was very popular in school, often making friends with all different types of people, older and younger than him. One friend in particular was a senior boy named John Velasquez. John Velasquez, who went by Johnny, or Johnny V, had only moved to town two years previously, so he didn't have the same upbringing as most of the other kids who grew up there. He grew up in Ohio, close to Cleveland, so he was exposed to more of the city life before his family moved to Huntington. He had to overcome some prejudice since he was darker complected and had a Hispanic name, but he became popular really fast since he came from a big city. He listened to rap music, he wore stylish clothes, and even knew how to break dance, so kids naturally flocked to him. He was confident, outgoing, and talkative, so people warmed up to him pretty quickly. What was considered cool and mature at this time, in 1989, were the idea of street gangs, and Johnny V liked to pretend that he was much more thug than he actually was. He really wanted to be the bad boy in town, which is why it was so easy for Jared to convince Johnny to commit a crime together. So during the winter of 1988 and into the new year of 1989, there was a rumor about a local middle-aged man named Eldon Anson. So Eldon Anson was a 57-year-old single man just shrouded in mystery who lived on a big plot of land on the outskirts of town with no immediate neighbors. He was mostly known for his expensive taste in classic cars, and he had a garage full of them at all times. Although his inventory was constantly changing because he would sell them, and then he would travel around the country and collect more of them. He was actually married at one point, and he had three daughters, but he was divorced at the time of this story. And I couldn't find what year they divorced. So the rumor circulating among high school kids was that Eldon Anson was gay and that he was luring boys and young men to his house with promises of drugs and alcohol and offering them money for sex. Along with this rumor was that Eldon had an armory of nice guns at his property. And somehow, 17-year-old Jared Wall had made up his mind that he needed to confront Eldon Anson since the local police didn't appear to be doing anything about him. He wanted to confront him because he was angry that he was luring young boys. That that was the reasoning? Yeah, I mean, so if you think about Jared Wall's history, so Jared Wall has been yeah. sexually abused since he was 11, so he harbors these... So he probably had a righteous rage. Yes, It's just a deep-seated hatred that stems from his own personal abuse and then it being reinforced by his community. And then on top of this, his uncle is currently dying of AIDS, and Jared is putting his uncle in his own shoes, and it never occurs to him that maybe his uncle was, like, voluntarily gay. In his mind, he was like, a gay man also abused my uncle, and that's why he has AIDS, and that's why he's dying. Mm, Okay. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Um, I guess the thing that doesn't make sense in my head is that, like, did somebody at the school personally claim to have been victimized by this man? Or was it just, like, rumors, like, we have heard that he does this to young boys, but there were no specific people? Because I, I can totally understand the righteous rage, and especially if, like, I heard that he did this to little Jimmy, or he did this to so-and-so, right? But if it's just like a random rumor with no nothing to back it up, I guess he's only 17. 
And I get like the projection part, but I, I, yeah. He doesn't actually name any names. The only person he names as hearing the rumor, the rumor from is a boy at his high school named Clayton Carter. But I don't know what Clayton's connection to Anson is. The rumor at the time was that uh, some of the local high school boys were making money uh, dealing drugs for Eldon Anson. But then it went further than that. And in addition to being drug dealers for him and making him money, which that part of it, I mean, doesn't even sound that out of the ordinary. Teenage boys trying to pick up extra cash and finding a local guy to deal drugs for. Like, that might be true. I don't know. But then they took it a step further and said, well, these teenage boys are dealing drugs for him, but also this guy is exchanging drugs to these teenage boys in exchange for sex, and he's a predator. But I couldn't actually tell you who he victimized, and it doesn't actually, I read a book about this, it doesn't actually say, and I can't find anywhere that, like, anyone he personally knows was, like, victimized by this man. He, so Jared gets upset because he feels like, why isn't this man in prison? Everyone who I trust to give me information, all these teenage boys who are super trustworthy. <laughs> he, he says, very, how, come, very trustworthy. how come the police aren't doing anything? So he was mad and he's like, I'm going to do something about it, right? But what he didn't know is that the police had heard these rumors and they had actually investigated the rumors and the allegations came up empty. But Jared didn't know that. So going back to Jared and his friend Johnny Velasquez. Remember, Johnny Velasquez, he's kind of like, he wants his bad boy badge around town, right? He's all about being thug and gangster and breakdancing and listening to rap music, right? So Jared knew how much his friend Johnny V loved guns and committing petty crimes and pretending to be thug. So he convinced Johnny V that the two of them should break into Eldon Anson's house on the outskirts of town and steal some of the guns he was rumored to have. And Johnny agreed. All of this story is wild to me because this is not the kind of high school experience I had whatsoever. Neither did I. Like, at all. Like, were people actually I, doing I grew this? very sheltered. Very sheltered. Um, like I mean, the idea I... of being 17 years old and being like, I could totally commit a burglary and steal guns? No, I have never thought that way in my life. This sounds like a Euphoria episode. I haven't seen Euphoria, but it's like, that's a drama, right? It's like totally over the top. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but I have seen enough clips on TikTok to generally surmise that this sounds like Euphoria. <laughs> I think people were, I mean, people were actually doing this, Kaylee. I don't get it. I think I just don't I'm know. Not, I like never was be. brave enough, I guess. You don't, we don't have the misplaced uh, confidence of a teenage boy. Yeah, it's the audacity. Yeah. And they're also athletes, like, they're kind of tough guys. To be fair, like, 17, 18-year-old boys, they are hella strong. Like, they are in kind of, like, peak physical performance. I just don't understand how that, like, replaces brain cells. Like, yeah, they think know. they're the strongest in the room, therefore they're the smartest. I don't know. Anyways, so... Anyways, this is a bad plan. Anyone looking at this is like, <laughs> this is a bad plan. Except for them, who are, they're like, this is a great plan. <laughs> <laughs> do it. So this is their plan, okay? Jared and Johnny plan to meet up on the evening of February 3rd, 1989, and they're going to burglarize Eldon Anson's home. Immediately, though, the plan falls through because Johnny's parents asked him to stay home that night 
and babysit his younger sisters, which I think is a little bit comical that he was like, yeah, I'm going to burg... And they planned this weeks in advance, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to burglarize this guy's house. I'm going to steal his guns and drugs, whatever. And then apparently the night of, he was like, hey, mom, I'm going to go hang out with Jared tonight. And she was like, oh, sorry, honey, we have plans. You have to babysit your sisters. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's literally what happened. But also, why were they doing this at night? They know this guy has guns and he probably does drugs why wouldn't they go like during the day when he's assumed to be at work do they want to fight him you're assuming that this is a well thought out plan it is not i just don't understand who robs a house at night when people are home unless you want to hurt somebody okay so there's two there's a few different versions of this story based on which interviews you read one of them is that he went there to pose as a young boy wanting to sell drugs for Anson. And they were going to break into his house and stand at the foot of his bed and do this proposal like that? I don't like, <laughs> I don't know what their plan was once they got their foot in the door. That's all really murky. But yeah, like I said, there's several versions. One is that he said, oh, I'm just going to go. We're going to pose as wanting to sell drugs for him. We'll get our foot in the door and then we'll... I don't know, tie him up? They never really say. <laughs> Alrighty then, okay. Okay, but the plan falls through because Johnny has to babysit his younger sisters, okay? So he is super bummed because he is like super excited to commit this burglary and I have no idea why. Can't relate. Exactly. So Johnny decides that he's going to convince one of his other friends to go in his place... So that Jared wouldn't have to go alone. And also he's hoping that when his friends come back from this burglary, he'll be able to hear all of the exciting details the next day. And like get to kind of live through them, right? Yeah. So Johnny convinces one of his friends, another senior boy named Eric Esch, to go out that night to commit the burglary with Jared. So now it's Eric and Jared. Is Jared also a senior or is he a junior? He's a junior... But I couldn't find his birthday anywhere, but it says that he's 17, so I think he's, like, an older junior. Like, I think he has an okay. early birthday. Okay. So now Eric is going in Johnny's place. So Eric Esch, like Johnny V, was also a transplant in Huntington, Indiana. He came from a troubled family. His parents were divorced. His mother was negligent and addicted to drugs. But his father and stepmother provided some stability when they moved him and his younger brother to Huntington, where his dad got a job at the local golf course. And Eric had a history of just really petty crimes, mostly shoplifting, and he had a juvenile record. But he tried to put all of that behind him when he got a fresh start moving to Huntington. He worked really hard to make the varsity football team, which... Is extra hard if you're a transplant because, like, the coaches don't know you. No one knows you. You don't have a reputation. So he had to bust his butt. Mm -hmm. He worked really hard, and he did make the varsity football team and one of and was one of their star players when he had the misfortune of befriending Jared Wall, whom he thought, like everyone else thought, was this golden boy. So he's trying to repent of his past and get a fresh start. And he sees Jared Wall, who, like I said, was Mr. Popular, goes to church. And he just happened to pick the absolute worst person to befriend. <laughs> so he makes friends with Jared thinking like, yeah, this is a good kid. Which is why I'm confused. I don't know why Eric agreed to take Johnny's place and commit this burglary. 
Because you would think he'd be like, oh, yeah, no, I don't want to do that because I have a juvenile record and I that's not what I'm trying to do right now. I'm sure they thought they were doing, like, a really good thing. Like, they would tie him up and get the truth and call the police and the police would be like, oh, my God, you solved this. That's that's my theory anyway. I... I cannot even fathom. I keep trying to put myself in their shoes and I'm like, no, never in a million years would I go through any, I would not make any of the decisions that any of these boys made. Never. Literally never. (laughs) I wonder if it's because I've never been a teenage boy and I want, if you're a man listening and you've ever been a teenage boy, I want to hear your account of like, if you ever had these thoughts because I never experienced anything like this. Never. And personally, if I'm doing vigilante work, I'm doing it alone. Okay? (laughs) Not involving people in my nonsense. (laughs) I'm going to get it done by myself. Okay? Yeah. I don't know why. Okay. (laughs) I guess he just wanted backup. I don't know. And before I actually perform the vigilante work, I'm going to make sure it's legit. Yeah. Which I'm going to do my due diligence. Not based off of rumors from teenage boys. No. What is going on? Anyways, I I mean, we have to remember, they're like 16, 17 years old. I mean, their brains aren't fully developed, so... Of course they're not. Clearly. Eric agrees to go with Jared and commit this burglary. But his account of that night, whenever he retells the story, it seems like he is not happy to be there. He seems really anxious, and immediately afterwards, he regrets everything. According to him. Oh, man. So Eldon Anson's house sat on a high rise about 40 feet above Highway 24, surrounded by cornfields out in the country with, you know, like out in the country where you have a long driveway and like the only indication that there's a house out there is just the mailbox by the road. Yeah. Yeah. That's like his house. They get to his driveway. They see his mailbox. And this is the dead of winter. So there's still ice and snow on the ground as Jared and Eric drive their way up Eldon Anson's driveway. They drove up the driveway? Yeah. (laughs) Like I said, everything about this is weird to me. So they drive up his driveway to the point where their headlights are like shining on his house and they park in his gravel parking area next to his car. (laughs) What the hell? In fact, (laughs) according to Eric, he asked Jared like, what are you doing? Why are we parking right next to his car? And Jared's like, just trust me. I would have been like, yeah, I'm out. Just trust you. Just trust you. (laughs) I got it all under control. I do not think you do. I've never been this confident about anything in my life. I've never been so unconfident about a situation in my life. (laughs) They get there about 9.40 p.m. And they knock on the front door. (laughs) And 57-year-old Eldon Anson opens the door. And he's obviously very confused to see two teenage boys he doesn't recognize standing on his doorstep. Rightfully so. Jared explained to Eldon that he was interested in buying a classic car from him and was hoping to look at his collection. At 9.40 at night. It was so late and the boys had arrived without any kind of warning, so Eldon tried to convince them to come back another time, like maybe the next morning when it's light outside? But Jared insisted that this was the best time for them since he had to work the next day. This whole situation is so weird. <laughs> I would have slammed the door. I'd be like, sorry, come back another day in the morning then. Okay, Bye. but you have to think. So Eldon Anson is a classic car collector, right? He's also a man. 
And you just know what happened is Eldon was like so proud of his car collection. He was like, hmm, of course he's going to want to show it off. Like, can you think of a single guy who collects classic cars that wouldn't want to just show it off to like everyone all the time? I'm pretty sure that's why they have the cars. Yeah, no, you're right. And I'm sure I'm sure he knew like these boys aren't actually going to buy a car and they just want to see the cars. Right. That's why they're here. So he gives in. He relents after Jared kind of convinces him. Eldon goes inside and he puts on, it's like, like I said, really cold outside. So Eldon relents. He pulls on a heavy hooded sweatshirt and he leads the two boys around to his big garage and barn in the back full of classic cars. Jared pointed out one car in particular, a maroon and white Oldsmobile Cutlass, and asked Eldon how much she was selling it for. As Eldon sifted through his assortment of car keys and went to unlock the car, Jared pulled out a 22 caliber revolver he'd stolen from his dad and shot Eldon Anson in the back of his head. Oh my fucking god. Yeah. Eric, who was not expecting this, immediately makes a break for it. <laughs> Run, Eric. Holy shit. Yeah. So Eric books it. He already had a criminal history and he didn't want to be tied to a potential murder. He ran all the way back to Jared's car, hoping to flee the scene. But when he gets there, he realizes that Jared's little 1982 Toyota Tercel had a manual transmission and Eric didn't know how to drive stick shift. Oh my god. So Eric was just stuck at the crime scene. And he's panicking. No, I would have ran. <laughs> just start running back Ran to all the way down the driveway. <laughs> I would just run. I'm dead ass serious. There's no way I'm staying there. Okay, you know what? Now that you say it, that's true. I would do the same thing. And I have asthma and it's wintertime. I would just keep running until I until I fell over. Yeah. Uh, truly and honestly, poor Eric. Because he didn't sign up for this. No. He signed up for some fucking tomfoolery, not murder. <laughs> I don't know if burglarizing. Then, I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if burglarizing and stealing guns counts as tomfoolery. <laughs> maybe, maybe you're right, but <laughs> but he was not expecting murder. But either way, no, no. I feel bad for this kid because it feels like he just got drug into it. He didn't really want to, and he's been trying to turn his life around. And I feel bad for him. That sucks ass. Yeah. But you're right. Okay, if I just saw someone, they're not even like close friends. They're like acquaintances. If I went thinking I'm going to hang out with this popular kid and he ends up pulling out a gun and shooting someone in the head, you're right. I would not turn around and go back at all. No. I wouldn't investigate. I would just run. I would get the fuck out of there. I have gone. I was invited to a popular kid's uh, sleepover. And now you're just lying. She wanted to sneak out. You know what? <laughs> I'm telling, I'm truthing this time. I'm, I'm just being and She rude. wanted to sneak out. Yeah, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> but you're not wrong, first of all. But one time I did get invited to a popular kid's sleepover and she wanted to sneak out with her other friend. And so we snuck out her window. But the whole time I was freaking the fuck out because if I got caught, I knew I'd get in so much trouble. But I went along with it because I was at her house and with her other cool friend. And yeah, and, and I just wanted to be accepted by them. So I just want to see along lame. with it. Yeah. I mean, nobody was murdered, but so I didn't have to just book it down the street. So. So you do understand. But he turned and went back in? Yes. So 
Why? After he realizes that he can't escape in the car, he was straight up just going to steal his friend's car and just drive away. No, that's warranted. I get that. What he ends up doing instead is he runs back to where Jared and Anson are. And he just tries to convince Jared, like, hey, bro, we need to leave immediately. But Jared notices that Eldon is still alive. So he fires into his head five more times. What Jared didn't know is that the gun that he had stolen from his dad, this little twenty-two pistol, had gone unused for years. It wasn't really maintained, and so it wasn't as powerful as a gun normally would be. So the bullets actually weren't penetrating very far into Eldon's head, like not enough to kill him. Just basically causing him immense pain. And then on top of that, he's wearing the thick hooded sweatshirt and his hood is up. And so that's also keeping the bullets from penetrating as far. So he just wasn't dying. This is the worst thing I've heard today. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, no, no, no. It's going to get worse. Just wait. I'm stressed. I'm stressed. This is when, when he realizes that the gun is not killing this man. Because he can't keep Eldon alive at this point because he's already seen his face and can identify him, right? Yeah. I say, yeah, like, this is a rational thing, but it's not. (laughs) But you understand why he thinks he has to kill him. Yes, yes. (laughs) This is when Jared lifts up his shirt and pulls a hatchet out of his waistband of his jeans and began swinging. Eldon had been up on his knees trying to stand when Jared began swinging the hatchet at him severing three of the fingers on Eldon's right hand that were held up in self-defense before making contact with his skull. Once Eldon fell to the ground, Jared delivered four more blows to his skull before finally stopping. The last blow to his head was so deep that Jared had to step on the back of Eldon's neck to gather enough strength to pull it out. And Eric is just sitting there in utter shock and horror watching. Because where can he go? Or did he leave? No, he's still there. Oh my god. He sees all of this happen. And he's obviously terrified of Jared. Obviously. Yes. <laughs> like, what do you do after you witness that? I have no idea. I really don't know either. Because I would have just ran in the first place like we just <laughs> talked about. <laughs> I wouldn't even be there, yeah. I wouldn't even be there. I don't even get invited to the cool people parties in the first place. None of this would happen. (laughs) If this is a cool people party, I never want to fucking go to a cool people party ever. Nope. This is awful. This is horrific. So now terrified of Jared and obviously in a state of shock, Eric just did what Jared said and followed him into the house to look for the guns and the drugs that they thought were stored somewhere. But their search comes up empty. So they go into the house, and they're checking everywhere, all the closets, all the drawers, and they don't find any guns, and they don't find any drugs. Oh my god. This is when Jared starts to wonder if maybe what his friend Clay Carter had told him, and all these rumors about Eldon's, like, gay sex parties, may have been just a stretch of the truth. Oh, now. It's a little bit too late for that. Now is when he considers this. Yeah. Okay. Okay, but this is kind of when they leave. So the two boys left, 
And their plan was to drop Eric off back at Johnny V's house. They kind of did that thing where you tell your parents, like, I'm going to spend the night at Johnny's house tonight, right? Yeah. So their plan was to drop Eric off at Johnny V's house for a sleepover that they had already planned. But before getting there, they stopped by a dumpster to discard the jacket that Eric had been wearing because they used his jacket to wrap up the bloody hatchet. And they wanted to dispose of the blood evidence. And then they drive to a bridge and they throw the hatchet in the Wabash River, which is all about like a quarter mile from Johnny V's house. However, as they slept that night, little did they know that Eldon Anson was still alive. Good for him. (laughs) But also not good for him. Are you not shocked? (laughs) That poor man is suffering. Uh, No, I'm shocked. This whole thing is very shocking. (laughs) Getting shot five times in the head, was it five or six, and then getting bludgeoned with a hatchet, and you're fucking still alive, man. And still being alive. Yeah. Like, I know this man was fueled by spite alone, and I have mad respect for that. (laughs) What these boys didn't know is that Eldon Anson rented out the basement of his house to a tenant named John Burris. So did John Burris hear the commotion? No. So John Burris wasn't home at the time of his landlord's attempted murder. He came home later that night about, because this is a Friday night. So he went out to a party. He comes home about midnight, which is just a couple hours after the attack. And as he's walking home, it's like bitterly cold outside. So he's kind of rushing to get back into his apartment. And he notices what he thinks is a bunch of trash on the ground near Eldon's cars. So he just kind of ignores it and he goes inside. What I don't understand is if he gets home about midnight, the account says that a couple hours later, what he was doing at 2 a.m. I don't understand. But apparently about 2 a.m. he heads back outside and this time he decides that he's going to investigate the trash, which is when he horrifyingly discovers that the pile of trash is actually the badly brutalized body of his landlord, who he thinks is dead. You know how, um, have you ever read the book The Gift of Fear? I've heard of it. I haven't read it. Basically, like, your body recognizes things that your brain doesn't process right away. Mm -hmm. And so, like, a lot of times women especially, because it's talking about, like, how women especially a lot of the time know when bad things are about to happen to them. Like, they know that a man is creepy before anybody else knows that he's creepy. Um, Because your body can identify things, it can identify patterns in people very quickly that you may not process at the same time that your body is seeing it. And so this reminds me of, like, he saw the trash on the ground and maybe his body recognized it in some way, that it was a human, but his brain is not processing it at the same time that his body is recognizing it. Mm Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense. At first, I was just like, why is he going back outside at 2 a.m.? Like, who does that? And then I thought, maybe he's a smoker and he's going out for a smoke break. I don't know. But what you're saying makes more sense is that it maybe took his brain a couple hours to be like, nah, that's going to bother me. That was weird. I need to go check that out. So police sergeant Rod Jackson arrives to investigate. And he... and. When John Burris called the police, he straight up said that from the beginning, like, my landlord's dead. So when the police sergeant arrives, he also thinks this man's dead, right? And when he gets there, 
He's been there for hours, and he's obviously bludgeoned, and he's, like, all frozen over. He's got, like, icicles growing in his mustache kind of thing, right? But then he sees Eldon's lip twitch. So he leans down only a few inches from Eldon's mouth, and he feels warm air coming out and realizes that this man is still alive. Did the cold air, like, did it freeze him to the point where it slowed down his internal bleeding? Dude, I don't know. So it put him in, like, a stasis? Interesting. So he is transported to Lutheran Hospital in Fort Wayne. His head is wrapped in bandages. And he lives for three more days, but he finally dies of his wounds on Tuesday, February 7th. So whoever attacked him is now looking at murder charges. So police look into Eldon's private life, and they were just stumped by who could have killed him. What made things more difficult was that he traveled a lot, so the number of people who could have targeted him was vast. But at no point did they suspect it was two local high schoolers who committed this crime. I feel like that's a fair assessment to not automatically go there. Yeah. The news of Anson's murder obviously spread like wildfire throughout the small town of Huntington. But since most people were familiar with the rumors that Eldon was homosexual, the general assumption was that he was maybe killed by a scorned lover and that this was a personal attack that didn't pose a greater threat to the community. Meanwhile, Jared and Eric went on with their lives like nothing had happened. So they went to work like they normally did. They went to school like they normally did. Jared had a shift like the very next morning at McDonald's and he acted like completely cool as a cucumber, which is insane. He seemed completely unfazed by the fact that he'd committed one of the most gruesome crimes Huntington had ever seen. He showed no outward signs of guilt, but on the other hand, Eric was a nervous wreck. He anticipated getting caught and thought about his impending incarceration every day. The walls finally came crashing down about three weeks later, when Johnny V couldn't keep the secrets of that night any longer. Even though Johnny hadn't been there when Eldon Anson was murdered, he thought the idea of his friends committing this heinous crime and being the talk of the town was sensational, and he wanted so badly to insert himself into the story. Which is why a few weeks later, when his friend Brandon came by his house to borrow some notes for class, he confesses that he and Jared were the ones who killed Eldon Anson. He literally was bragging to his buddy Brandon about this murder, not thinking that it would come back to bite him, but of course the cat gets out of the bag. I do not understand. I don't understand wanting to be tied to this in any way. I don't understand doing it. I No! This is not normal. This is the dumbest shit I ever fucking heard and it costs somebody their life. Like, he thinks that this is like an episode of, I don't even know what was on TV in the 1980s, but... He thinks that this is cool. You know what really fucking pisses me off, though, is that this whole thing was fueled by homophobia and self-hate. Like, this kid needed therapy and he needed to not be in an environment that was so hell-bent on telling people that they were damned and disgusting and dirty for being gay. Mm -hmm. Or for having gay sex, right? This kid was a victim. He was groomed. And he took that self-hate, fueled by the hate of the community around him, and he externalized it into physical harm of another human being. That pisses me the fuck off. 
This was preventable, in my opinion. Totally preventable. By not being a homophobic bitch. Well said. Yeah, this reminds me of our episode on the Montreal Massacre. How Uh the gunman went into that Canadian university and... In that episode, we analyzed his suicide note, and it seemed like a bunch of just misplaced anger, where he's obviously mad at himself, but he thinks that the root of all of his problems at the time was feminists. And that was about the same time. It was the late 80s, right? 1989? Yeah. I think it was the same year, where oh yeah, he's he was projecting. And that sounds like that's exactly what jared is doing is that instead of going to therapy and figuring out the root cause of his own problems and solving them himself he's instead blaming it he's finding a demographic to blame it on in this case it's gay men yeah and i can imagine like therapy probably wasn't really a thing in 1989 right like we have much (laughs) better access even though it's not it's not great access but we have much better access now today than people did and in 1989 and so i can imagine people like jared felt backed into a corner Mm -hmm. a lot of times because what were your options if you were literally raised with no emotional intelligence in a small-minded homophobic community where you are being sexually abused by an older boy as a boy right like you you're backed into a corner there. there there's not a lot of places that your that your brain can take you to solve that problem other than anger towards yourself or finding a scapegoat and projecting that anger towards that scapegoat. Yeah, because like what resources did he really have? Yeah. He probably thought like, oh, if you have a problem, and you and I were raised this way, if you are having a problem, you go to the leader of the church. But he, for years, has been sitting in that same church listening to his preacher talk about how homosexuality is like, it's an abomination. So you... He didn't want to go to that guy. (laughs) Yeah. Like, they would have thought that he was a predator. Yeah. Right? Because that's what people's mind automatically went to. If you're a gay man, you're a predator. That that was the stereotype. And he was teaching a Sunday school class with children. Like, he would have been demonized so fast. He would have lost his, his status in school. And he would probably potentially would have lost his job. Like... There would have been serious social repercussions if he had talked to the one person that he had been told would potentially be able to help him, which Mm -hmm. is probably his pastor or father, whoever is in charge of uh, parish. Is it parish? I don't know. I don't think he was actually Catholic. I think he was um, non-denominational, but it's the same idea. Okay, yeah. But all of this was preventable. All of it. (laughs) Literally all of it. (laughs) So back to the story. Johnny V tells his buddy Brandon, like, is bragging to him, I was the one that committed this murder with Jared Wall. But as you can imagine, something like that doesn't just, like, stay a secret. Brandon tells his girlfriend, who then convinces him to tell his mom, who calls the police immediately, and they take Johnny and his parents to the police station for questioning. Obviously, that's what's going to happen. I don't know. This, Yeah. It's the one lead that they have. Of course, they're going to do it. Yeah, because honestly, okay, if Johnny hadn't opened his huge mouth, this may have never gotten solved because the police were not looking at them. They didn't really leave any yeah. evidence. They dispose of everything. So this could have potentially just gone a secret if people hadn't opened their mouths about it. Yeah. The police go back to Johnny V 
And obviously they pick up him. And since he's underage, they also take his mom and dad back to the police station for questioning. This is what Johnny says. He's actually a really good friend in the sense that when he opened his mouth and was blabbing about the crime, he did not implicate Eric at all. He told Eric, if it ever comes up, I'll take the fall for it. Because he actually wanted that notoriety. What the hell? When the police pick him up and question him, that's what he does. He thinks that if he simply inserts himself in the story and just tells it from the perspective of like he was the Eric of the story. Mm -hmm. He thinks that since he wasn't the one that actually pulled the trigger, he wasn't the one that actually committed the murder, that he nothing bad is going to happen to him. Which is not how the law works. He would get all the street rep, none of the consequences. That's what he thought, yeah. Yeah. But the police start cracking down on him, and Johnny realizes that they could send him to prison, and they could definitely try him as an adult, because he's 17. So he finally breaks down and tells them that actually it was Eric and Jared at the crime scene that night while he was at home babysitting his sisters. Because once it's real and they're saying, like, if you really did this, then you're going to prison... He's like, oh shit, no, I I wasn't there. I didn't yeah. I didn't do this. So after they're done questioning Johnny, and Johnny kind of spills the beans. Early morning hours of March 10th, the following day, they the police decide next that they're gonna question Jared Wall and his parents. So they go to the Wall family house to pick up Jared and his parents about 2 a.m. So they knock on the door and the whole family sleeps. 2 a.m. Yeah, because they're doing this immediately, like, back-to-back. They finish with Johnny, and they immediately go to Jared's family's house. It's the middle of the night, they're sleeping, and they have to go into the police station. But when they question Jared, Jared just stays silent the whole time. Like, him and his parents, just completely stoic. Just a little insert. I know Jared is obviously guilty, but in a situation where you have to talk to the police... Do that. Shut the <laughs> fuck up. That's what he does. You want a lawyer. <laughs> Literally, don't say anything else. Yeah. Like, I know Jared is guilty and he should be locked up because this is absolutely fucking heinous. But pro tip for you, the listener shut the fuck up. Say you want a lawyer. <laughs> so they can't get any additional information out of him. So they just place him under arrest. Next, they have to question Eric. So they go to Eric Esch's house and they take him and his father down to the station for questioning. And Eric just simply tells them the truth. Um, He's probably hoping that he's going to get a light sentence because he didn't actually commit the murder. He was just there. But as you and I know that maybe he doesn't know is that the fact that he didn't go forward with the information, he's going to be held partially responsible. Okay, but Eric Esch is the one who finally creates some clarity in the case that Johnny V wasn't... Because Jared doesn't talk, right? And Johnny V wasn't actually there. So Eric is the one with kind of the most credible information. And one piece of information that finally seemed to explain Jared's motive came from Eric Esch's testimony. So Eric explains that as Jared was removing the hatchet from Eldon's head... He apparently said, you're a fag and fags need to die. Oh, that hurt my heart. So that is the very first motive that these police can finally seem to fathom. Because up until this point, they're like, why did this seemingly golden boy, Jared Wall, target this random man 
and brutally murder him and he didn't seem to get anything out of it, right? Like he didn't steal anything. It seems like such a personal crime, but they didn't really know each other. Like, why did this happen? And this is when they finally Mm -hmm. are like, oh, this is a hate crime. I don't know if Mm -hmm. the term hate crime existed in 89, but they're piecing it together, right? I'm sure it existed in some aspects. I don't know if it, I'm sure it existed in terms of like race or ethnicity, but I don't know if it included sexuality yet. Yeah. So after all was said and done, Jared Wall was sentenced to 60 years in prison for first degree murder. Eric Esch was given 20 years for the burglary and not coming forward to police. And Johnny Vlasquez, who wasn't even there, but because he knew about it and didn't come forward to police, he was sentenced to 30 years. 30? Yes, and I'm going to explain why. So what happened with Johnny was a little bit different. So he wasn't even there. But what he got was 30 years broken down because, one, he knew about the murders and he didn't come forward. And two... It was uh, premeditated and he knew about that. That was part of it, yes. He was originally planning to commit the burglary and it was premeditated. But also, only a few weeks after the murder... Johnny actually committed a burglary elsewhere in town. He burglarized a deputy sheriff's home in town and stole one of his guns. And they tied this in with his trial. And the court believed that just aspects of Johnny's behaviors indicated that he was likely to commit more crimes in the future. And he also never expressed any kind of remorse for any of the victims in his testimonies. So the fact that he wasn't even present during Eldon Anson's murder seemed to mean very little to the judge. That's crazy that they actually tied this in with the same trial because did, who, what kind of lawyer did he have? Just like a, a court appointed one? I don't know. Because usually they do not let that happen. Your, your lawyer does not want that to happen. And they fight tooth and nail to make sure that they cannot include any other past offenses Or anything like that in there if they're not relevant. They all got these really hefty sentences, but none of them actually had to finish their sentences to full term. Johnny Velasquez, he was handed 30, which seems excessive to me. But he ended Mm -hmm. up only serving seven years before getting parole in 1996. And then I couldn't find what year exactly Eric Esch was granted parole, but he was already paroled and went to college, and graduated from Ball State University by 1997. So he must have gotten out pretty quickly. And then Jared Wall, he was originally given the 60 years. He ended up serving 26. That's not enough. He actually, if you look him up now, he currently has several degrees in English and psychology. And he's become a devoted advocate for the rights of incarcerated individuals and is currently a PhD student at Tulane University focusing on sociology. Bullshit. (laughs) He should have become an advocate for the rights of uh, gay people everywhere because what the fuck was that? We just let him out? (laughs) Yes. He brutally murdered that man. Like, that is so awful. Well, what what I saw and what I read was that And you can agree or disagree with this all you want, but it's common with parolees to look at what their behavior was like before 
their crime and also their behavior in prison. And I guess he had, like, no other violent tendencies. He didn't have any kind of a criminal record, and he was a model citizen in prison, and so that will contribute to an early release. And also, he was underage whenever it was done, so they might factor in that his brain wasn't fully developed, even though they still tried him as an adult. Maybe it was fine that Jared got out when he did, but I have no idea if he was offered any services to help his extreme, obvious self hatred from having been abused so was he offered any therapy for that like did he get any help was he psychoanalyzed yeah and the root of this crime was homophobia and that if you want to resolve future crimes future hate crimes like this you have to address the root of the issue which was the homophobia yeah and the child sexual abuse yeah like i i understand potentially letting someone out early who like reacted like potentially hurt somebody because of fear like they were scared they felt backed into a corner but this feels different because jared specifically sought this man out he went to his house he wasn't backed into a corner he went to this man in order to do this i obviously do not have all the answers but yeah that that feels crazy to me okay you ready to sign off i guess so (laughs) I don't fucking buy, I guess. There's <laughs> there's no way to resolve this. It's just another story. No. About, another week on Crime Soup where I set out to ruin your day and I feel like I succeeded. You always do. <laughs> You're very good at your job. We are such good friends. All we do is ruin each other's lives. And we're still we're still talking. We still enjoy each other's company. <laughs> Every time I'm like, you want to hear a horrible story? Absolutely. Absolutely, I do. I I don't know what that was. Was that Australian mixed with, like, country? What the hell was that? My brain is scrambled. I don't know. I think this story took brain cells away from me, honestly. (laughs) I feel stupider after listening to this story, (laughs) Hannah. I really do. I really fucking do. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us this week on Crime Soup Podcast. Um, I hope this story ruined your day. If you'd like to have your day ruined next week, you can come back next Tuesday. We'll have an all-new story. Uh, Be sure to find us on social media. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, you name it. Be sure to let us know what your thoughts are. And we also have a website where you can buy your very own Crime Soup merch and you can listen to all of our past episodes. Our website is crimesouppodcast.com. As always, stay safe. We'll see you next week. Bon appetit! (laughs) 